to a, such a beautiful Sunday morning. Lord, we're so thankful for this beautiful weather you've given us. We thank you for the gathering of the brethren here this morning. We're grateful for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be where we are when two or three are gathered. And Father, we're also grateful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We thank you that you have given us salvation in and through him. We thank you for the blood that has cleansed us of sin, that has brought in forgiveness and reconciliation to God. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who has given us life and who convicts us of sin, who draws us to Christ, who teaches us of Christ. And Father, we ask that this morning that he might do that very thing, that he might teach us, grow us in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see the glory and the greatness and the exaltation of our King. Lord, may we be um, enabled by your Spirit today to worship in spirit and in truth and to lift up this worship and to exalt Christ this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach, that you would keep me from error. I pray that you would give these brethren that are here understanding uh, as your word is being broken this morning and, and, and shared. And Lord, I just thank you again for all that you have done. I pray for all the churches that you have around this world, Lord. Uh, and your people, that they might be fed this morning by God's word, and that you will be honored above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> well, brethren, I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me. Uh, last week I mentioned that I was going to finish up the part about talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and I told you I was going to deal with some, uh, some questions uh, about uh, some seemingly contradictions in some of the passages of Scripture about Jesus' uh, death and his resurrection. And um, that was my intention today, but as I was studying a couple of verses on some of these uh, contradictory, um, seemingly contradictory verses, um, I uh, started looking at some of the words in the Greek, and, and it kind of took me on a rabbit trail, and uh, some stuff that I hadn't really seen or looked at before. And I really would like to do a little more thorough study on it uh, before I say or, or preach on it and stuff, just so that I make sure that I'm not speaking out of my own traditional thoughts or in my own, you know, understanding, but that I can definitely find that that the Word of God backs what I have seen in some of these scriptures. So I want to just kind of maybe put that on hold, maybe until next week, and give me another another week to look at a couple of the verses that I was going to look at uh, because it's, it's, it's kind of some interesting things. So anyway, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to put that off until maybe next week. We will get back into Galatians uh, eventually, just taking a, a little bit of a break from that. This morning, uh, I just kind of felt compelled since I was going to put that re uh, resurrection uh, message on hold. Uh, I kind of felt compelled to uh, speak about um, a wonderful teaching uh, doctrine in Scripture. Um, you know, as people that believe in sovereign grace, we're often uh, we're often called Calvinists, which we don't believe we're Calvinists. Uh, we don't uh, hold to what Calvin says. I mean, that's regardless of anything. We believe what the Bible says. What what God has taught, He's taught from the very beginning. Calvin didn't bring anything into existence or find some new way of looking at things or whatever. Um, 
nor are we in the line of Calvinistic beliefs as far as, you know, church and baptism and things like that. Um, so we, we don't use those terms. We try to just speak biblically around here and we throw out some of those terms. But however, because we believe the doctrines of grace, people will often say, oh, well, you're those people that believe in Calvinism or uh, that you believe in tulip and all that kind of stuff. And everybody knows what we're talking about when we say tulip, right? Uh, you know, that's an acronym. And each letter of the word tulip stands for something. Uh, the T stands for uh, total depravity. The U stands for unlimited election, uh, unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. The I stands for irresistible grace. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Uh, again, we usually don't use a lot of those acronyms and all those things and talk about stuff, but the Bible does speak on every bit of those things, and we, we've taught on those throughout the years. But today I would like to look at the P part of that acronym, uh, perseverance, preservation. And the reason for that is because <clears throat> oftentimes we as the children of God need to be encouraged because as we've been seeing in Galatians, whenever we're looking at the law of God and we're looking into the Word of God and we're seeing righteousness as it's as it's demonstrated, holiness and righteousness as it's demonstrated by God's law, we find how far short we fall. And as we've been expressly in Galatians looking at is the fact that we can't gain any righteousness or perform any righteousness before God in our flesh. And that any hopes of a righteousness or a right standing or a right relationship before God by any works or any righteousness of ourself, it, it's always going to fail. There's always sin going to be with us and we cannot keep that law. And the law requires you to keep it perfectly. If you can't keep it perfectly, you are completely and totally uh, um, uh, guilty of everything that the law says and or that the law has uh, told you to do you're guilty of breaking that and in and in understanding that knowing that whenever the child of grace and their eyes and their understanding has been opened by the lord to see themselves as sinners to see themselves as lawbreakers to know themselves as being unrighteous and unworthy servants sometimes in our mind we can begin to doubt we can begin to get fearful we can begin to uh feel like we just want to give up um and uh to some people they think that we can even turn from the faith and lose our salvation and the bible does talk about people who have turned from the faith even in our passages in galatians we've seen that paul had even made a statement he said that uh, that you who believe that you can keep the law you have fallen from grace but does the Bible teach that a Christian, a true child of God, can fall away from grace? Can they actually be turned away from the faith? Can they actually uh, lose their salvation? Well, the, the answer is no. We may have times of, of failure. We may fall into seasons of sin. We may fall into seasons of, um, uh, of uh, indifference. Where we just, you know, I don't care. You know, I just, I don't care. But the Holy Spirit of God that is in us will always bring this conviction back to us. It will always draw us back to God. And sometimes the Lord does in His chastening love for us. He will allow us to see seasons 
of sin in our life. He will allow us to go in directions of doubt and fear to some degree so that we might turn and, and, and look to Him. And so the doctrine of perseverance or preservation is very needful to be taught in the, in the churches of Christ because it gives us and, and expresses the hope that we have in Christ that although we continue to fail, although we continue to miss the mark, although we continue to battle in this sinful flesh, that we are being preserved until Christ comes and this body flesh is put away and a new body is given to us. And so we need to hear that hope that, yes, you may desire to be holy, you may desire to do the works of God, you may desire to do all these things, but at the times when you fail, don't think that God has given up on you. Don't think God is turning away from you, that you have lost uh, your relationship with the Lord, that He is still uh, loving you, and He is preserving you uh, until the day uh, of His return. So I wanted to look at some verses throughout Scripture. We're going to be looking at a bunch of verses, so get your, get your turning fingers ready in your Bible. But let's start in Jude, the epistle of Jude. And uh, let's look at the first verse there. We're going to see here, uh, just in passing in the, in the introduction of this letter, a very profound piece of doctrine. Jude, the first verse, it says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Notice that word sanctified is past tense. Brethren, the children of grace are already sanctified. They're sanctified. Okay? We are sanctified by God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our sanctification. And so, <clears throat> there isn't anything that we can do to sanctify ourselves or make ourselves more holy, as some people look at that word to mean. That word means to be set apart. Okay? That word being set apart. God has elected us, chosen us, and set us apart from the rest of mankind to be His people. We were elect before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, as we'll see in Ephesians here in a minute. We were blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So we were set apart for God's use as His people even before the world began. That was being sanctified. And it was in Christ Jesus that we were sanctified. Being in Him, we were sanctified. So that sanctification isn't a progressive building of your holiness in the flesh year by year by year by all your doing good and all the stuff that you do. To be sanctified means to be elected of God and chosen to be His people, the vessels of honor. Okay? It says, To them that are sanctified by God the Father, and here it is, and preserved in Christ Jesus and called. We are preserved in Christ Jesus. The reason that we are preserved is because we are in Christ Jesus. So the reason that we can never lose our salvation is because our salvation began before the foundation of the world 
It didn't have nothing to do with anything that any of us did. It didn't have anything to do with a work that you did, a decision that you made, a choice that you uh, 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 expressed. It had nothing to do with any of that. Salvation was already determined before the foundation of the world by God. Those people were chosen in Christ Jesus and they were preserved in Him, meaning that all those that were put into Christ Jesus is going to be preserved in Christ Jesus. That means from the time that they come into existence and until the time that they die, they will be preserved as God's children, even before you understand your own salvation. Even before I became aware that the Lord had saved me and died for me and reconciled me to God and forgave my sins and chosen me before the foundation, before I ever even knew that, the Lord was preserving me. He formed me, as we just say, He formed me in the womb and He is going to carry me to the tomb. He formed me and He is keeping me and preserving me until I die or until He comes again. So salvation, not only in the eternal past aspect, we are preserved in Christ Jesus, but in the present we're preserved in Christ Jesus because we are in Him, because His Spirit is in us, and He will keep us, and we'll see this here in, as we go further. But I wanted to start here in Jude because it shows that we were sanctified, which speaks of the eternal election of God, and we are preserved in Christ Jesus because of our union in Him. We call it eternal vital union. We have been eternally vitally uni united with Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> that, in and of itself, brethren, is why we cannot lose our salvation. It's because it was fixed from the beginning. And it will stay that way, clear until eternity future, or whatever, whenever that will be for us. That it will always be. That's why the Bible says that He has loved us with an everlasting love. That's why it says that no one can lay any charge to God's elect because it is Christ who is justified. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so preservation, or whenever the Bible talks about us being uh, 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 persevering in the faith, it is because we are being preserved by Jesus Christ. But we see here that we are preserved in Christ Jesus. Nothing can escape us. Matter of fact, Jesus said himself, he said that uh, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and then you, uh, you know, that I am in the Father's hands and you are in my hands and no one can pluck you out. No one can take you out of my hands. Okay, well, that's how secure we are. That's how secure we are. But let's look throughout the scriptures and let's see some places that encourage us of uh, this very fact of, of God's preserving His people. Uh, let's start in uh, Psalms chapter 34, if you will. Psalms chapter 34. <clears throat> and let's look at verse 7. Psalms 34 and verse 7. <clears throat> Psalms 34 and verse 7. Of course, remember, all the things that's written in the Old Testament are written for our understanding of Christ and also through uh, allegory 
through metaphor, through type and foreshadow, uh, our relationship to Christ as his people. And here we see it says, The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. Now remember, the only ones that fear the Lord are those who are the Lord's people, right? The Bible says that, that those who are outside of Christ have no fear of God in them. But yet those who are Christ, who have been born from above, they fear the Lord. And that word fear means reverence. It doesn't mean I'm scared that somebody's going to hurt me. It's reverence. It means reverence. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Now, we can discuss this, you know, for quite a while, go through a lot of scriptures. But brethren, I believe when in the Old Testament when it talks about the angel of the Lord, I believe that it's speaking of Christ. The angel of the Lord is Christ. He's the messenger of God. In the Old Testament, uh, we find many examples uh, of the angel of the Lord doing this and doing that, and it's reference uh, to Christ. But that's for another day and another teaching. But we see here, irregardless whether... <laughs> whether it's that or whether it's the angel of the Lord uh, being sent to do this from the Lord, uh, the fact remains that they will be delivered. There is no chance that the people of God who has been sanctified and preserved before the foundation of the world, there is no way that they are not going to be delivered. They will be delivered. This is a parallel verse almost to John chapter 6 that we'll be looking at here in just a few minutes that says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Okay? And we'll look at that when we get to it. Look at Psalms chapter 48 while we're here. Psalms 48. And look with me at verse 14. Scripture says, For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Who's the one who guides the child of grace? It's the Lord. Well, who's the one who's going to, or how long is he going to do it? Until death. The Lord is going to guide us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's never going to turn away from us whenever you do bad. And by the way, how much bad do you do before he turns away? Is it as soon as you do bad? Is it five bads? If you, we used to in school, we used to get have a chart, and I think the kids they have a deal at work that they have a chart, and they get these little stars beside their name when they do things good. Well, in, in in school, when I was in school, we had a chart, and we got a star when we did something good, and then we got something called a demerit uh, if we did something bad. You don't hardly hear that term anymore anymore, but demerit. If you do something good, you get a merit. If you do something bad, you get a demerit, which is a taking away of a merit, right? So you get a star taken away. So it's always this vision of if I do good, I get rewarded. If I do bad, I don't get rewarded. And even I might get stuff, stuff taken away. And so i got to keep my good going so that I stay right with God. Well, <clears throat> uh, here we see it's, uh, it says... For God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even till death. He's not going to leave us or forsake us when we do bad, no matter how bad it's going to be. He doesn't take away or demerit us 
at any point. Does he chasten us? Absolutely, he chastens us. But what does the Bible say about chastening? Those whom he loves, he chastens, right? So the act of chastening the child of grace is an act of love, not an act of anger, not an act of hatred, not an act of, uh, of uh, despising. Whenever we are chastened of the Lord, we are chastened because he loves us. And that chastening is for a learning, for our understanding, uh, to learn more of Christ for our dependence upon Christ. And, and the Lord doesn't just chasten us because we've done something bad. Sometimes the Lord will chasten us just for His own, or because of His own purpose. I mean, look at Job. Remember Job? The Lord chastened Job severely. <laughs> but Job had not done anything as far as the Lord did that because Job did something. But what, did, what happened in the, in the heat of that chastisement? Job learned something about the Lord, right? Through God's loving chastisement, Job learned something, not only about himself, but he learned something about the Lord. And so our chastisements are there for our learning. Sometimes the Lord, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes the Lord leads us and directs us and allows us to go down these paths that we will experience the sinfulness of ourselves so that we might know and appreciate the work that He has done on our behalf. That we might uh, look to Him for everything. And so here, He's our guide. He guides us even unto death. And so how long will He be our guide? Well, He's going to be our guide. Clear until the time we die or He comes back. So He's not going to leave us. There's never a time that we can lose that. Right? So that's a promise that the Lord has given us. Uh, look at Psalms 125. Psalms 125. Look at verse 1. It says, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. We've talked about that word abideth forever. That word abideth forever means trust forever, right? It just it rests in the Lord, trusting in Him. Waiting upon Him. Knowing that He is there all in all. Right? Be still and know that I am God. So abiding isn't working, isn't, isn't performing. Abiding is just resting in who you are and what Christ has done. You're His child. He's your King. He's your prophet, priest. He's your Savior. He is your righteousness. And we just abide in Him. And so when we do that, we'll never be removed because what causes us to shift back and forth? Well, that turmoil in our mind that we're not doing enough good. The times that I begin to doubt the Lord and think that, I don't, that I'm not saved is the times that I keep thinking that I'm, I have to perform a righteousness. I'm not doing good enough before God, so... God's probably not pleased with me, and if He's not pleased with me, then I've broken fellowship with Him, and we no longer have fellowship. But see, if we abide in Him, we rest in Him, looking to Him as our only righteousness, that His substitutionary life of obedience and His substitutionary death in, our, in justice upon us, if we rest in that, abide in that, 
We're not going to be removed. We're not going to be faltering around. We're not going to be thinking we're losing our salvation. We're going to know salvation is of the Lord and it cannot be changed. It cannot be moved. It abideth forever. So there again is is another, uh, while it's a statement, uh, but it's uh, definitely a promise. Those that trust in the Lord and those are the ones who have been born again and given faith shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. Look at Psalms 138.8, if you would. Psalms 138, verse 8. It says, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Now that word perfect there, and we see it also in the New Testament used of Christ as well, but that word uh, perfect there, it means to complete. The word there means complete. What does that say in in, in y'all's Spanish Bible? Does it use that type of language? The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Fulfill, complete, yeah. So, so see, it's even uh, it's even translated that way in, in the uh, Spanish Bible. Um, the uh, the word perfect there. See, in our English word, that can mean something else. It could be uh, perfect, meaning without sin. It could mean. Uh, it can be, you know, never doing anything bad or always doing the right thing. Well, this is not what it's talking about. It said, the Lord will perfect or complete, fulfill that which concerneth me. That means that which the Lord has began, he's going to finish, right? He began in eternity to choose a people for himself to be a people of honor, to glorify him, to honor him, to exalt him, to worship him, and to preach his gospel. To exalt Christ, right? The Bible tells us in Romans that that the Lord has made two vessels, a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor. Those who are the vessel of honor is to be a a vessel that is for his glory, to present his glory. Well, the Lord is going to complete that which concerneth me. What is the purpose that God has sanctified us and set us apart? Remember that word (laughs) sanctified means set apart for God's use. Well, what is God's use? Well, God's use is to use us as vessels of honor for Him in this life. And He's going he's gonna to complete or He's going to fulfill that which concerns me. He's going to fulfill that in me. He's going to make sure that all that's done. What's another verse that we know in the New Testament that says the same thing? <clears throat> Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's one That's one verse. What's another New Testament verse that says that same thing? How about, um, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto God, uh, good works, which the Lord hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That, that phrase that we should walk in him is not a might walk in that we might walk in them, that we should. That old English word should is different than what, how we understand it today. That, that phrase means 
that God has ordained these works and Christ is carrying out these works in us by the Spirit and they will be accomplished. Every work that God has ordained for us to do will be accomplished in us. So see, we have that promise. He's going to fulfill. That word there, perfect, he's going to fulfill or he's going to complete that which concerneth me. Then it says, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. See, he's not going to, he's not going to come against us because of our sinfulness, because his mercy endures forever. His mercy has been set upon us. The Lord said that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Who's he speaking of there? The elect of God who have been sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones that he has given mercy to. That he is going to show mercy to. And here he says, thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. That means there's never going to be a time that the Lord is not going to show mercy unto his children. He is not going to condemn them. But he's going to show mercy to them. He says, forsake not the work of thine own hands. And we know that the Lord will never forsake the work of his own hands. That he will complete everything that he has promised to complete. Right? So there's a promise, brethren, of your perseverance and God's preservation of you. Look with me, if you would, at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I want to start reading at verse 10. Uh, some comforting words reading this this morning, uh, especially for anybody who sorrows over the sinfulness, and it seems like sometimes their whole life is just, you know, I'm just a complete mess up all the time, you know. But something that, that is very encouraging here, remember Ecclesiastes was, uh, was written by Solomon, and Solomon had been given wisdom above every other person in, that had ever lived. Uh, he had great wisdom. The Lord had given him great wisdom. Now Solomon definitely had his faults. Solomon was not perfect. He was a very sinful man. Okay? But he was one of the Lord's elect. And Solomon was a good king. <coughs> but Solomon was given wisdom. And in that wisdom he seen everything that there is to see. He experienced just about anything being the richest king that had ever been. He's seen everything and had experienced just about everything that there was to experience. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write some things about what God had brought him through. Looking in verse 10, he says, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Now let's just stop there for a minute. There is a whole group of quote-unquote Christians that teach that God does not cause people to travail. That God wants them to be healthy all the time. That He wants them to be wealthy. That He wants them to have good all the time and no bad. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever heard them preachers? 
There's a lot of them, right? And most of those preachers who keep preaching that God wants you to be wealthy are the ones that's telling you, you need to send me your money, right? <laughs> if you'll send me your money, then God will bless you, right? He says, he, uh, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised. God causes us to travail. He exercises us in travail. He causes grief. He causes sorrow. He causes affliction for a purpose. He always has a purpose. He never does it willy-nilly. He always has a reason for bringing us through travail. Have you been through a, a trial in your life? Have you been through hardships in your life? Have you been through some afflictions? That's travail. And God hath given that to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Verse 11, He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Now when you're going through those afflictions, whenever you're going through those seasons and times of hardship or through times of sin, struggling with sin or indifference, listen, while they are evil and while they are bad or while they are uncomfortable, the fact remains that in God's time, in God's look on things, everything is beautiful because He has a purpose for it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a horrible, evil thing. But it is beautiful in the eyes of God. Remember he said that it was with joy uh, that he went to the cross? That, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Why? Because of the outcome of what it was there for. It was for the glory of God. And all things, even our travail, our afflictions, our our hardships that we go through that may cause us to doubt and think we're going to lose our salvation or that we're being displeasing to God because of these seasons in our life or that God's punishing us because we're not doing enough good. The Bible here says that God is bringing us through these travail, this travail and exercised in, in this for a purpose that is beautiful in the end. Now, is there a New Testament verse that coincides with this? Doesn't the Bible say that he works all things for our good? To them who are the called according to his purpose. Even the things that are of travail. He says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. See, nobody's going to figure out why God does this, right? Have you ever thought whenever you're going through a hardship, Lord, why are you doing this? Why am I having to go through this? Well, we don't know the exact reason, but we do know this reason, that he does it for our good and for his glory. We know that. We can always put that to everything that happens to us. It's God's will for his glory and for our good, if we're his children. He says, he set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning... To the end, that means God has decreed all things from the beginning and everything is going to happen and clear till the end. God has made it so that no man can figure out what God is doing other than the fact that he's going to glorify himself. A lot of people try to figure out what God's doing and they're not going to. I know it because God says he's made it that way. Now look at verse 12. I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. See, there's no good. We know that there's no good. Paul said it. 
Paul's almost quoting this. He said, I know that in me dwells no good thing. He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. He said, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But it says here, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. What's this saying? It's saying, well, we enjoy the gifts that God has given us. We're going to go through these trials and hardships, but we continue to live our life, continue to walk in this knowing that God has a purpose for us and enjoy the things that God has given to us. I knew some folks uh, a while, it's been a while since we talked about this, but I, I knew a brother one time and he talked about that that to for a Christian to enjoy like like this right here, this TV. There are a lot of people that would judge me for having this big old TV. That's evil right there. You've got something evil in your house. Well, it's only evil if I use it for evil, right? To sit out here on my deck and not be studying the Bible all the time, but if I sit out here with a cold drink out on my deck and barbecuing or going to a movie or going to fishing or something like that, Having a nice, having a car, you know, having nice things. They say, oh, well, we, we should be, you know, we should be so humble and not have everything that we have should be just as only what we absolutely just have to have, you know, that if we have anything extra or anything maybe even extravagant, that, that's sinful. <coughs> <coughs> Brethren, those are the gifts that God has given us. And it says right here, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. I work at a job that allows me to buy this TV and that, those chairs and that deck and that those cooking utensils. Waylon bought me a new barbecue thing out there. He did that by the labor. Now we're going to enjoy it when we cook on it. You know. God has given us these gifts to enjoy, not to suffer from and say, oh, I feel guilty because I have these things. Now, I think that we need to still be mindful with these things and think that if we can do and help others, we can help do and help others with what the Lord has given us. And that we shouldn't boast in what we do, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that God has given us. And there's definitely nothing wrong with eating and drinking and enjoying the life that the Lord has allowed us to have. But look at verse 14. I know that whatsoever God do, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. Now let's pause there before I go to the next phrase. I know that whatsoever God doeth, now this is, him saying this is in context to God doing something from, make it from the beginning to the end. The work that God hath made from the beginning to the end. We're talking about God's eternal decree. We started this off talking about before the foundation of the world. God has sanctified and has preserved a people in Christ Jesus. And it began in eternity before our bodies or before even any creation was made, but especially before we were ever born, 
God had began that work in eternity. But it says right here, whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it. If God sanctified me or set me apart for being a vessel of honor before the foundation of the world and preserved me in Christ Jesus, and has that plan and everything from the beginning to the end worked out for His will, and that He has given gifts for us to uh, to experience and to and to enjoy, but He has also given us travail. There's going to be good times, right? And there's going to be bad times. That's what He's saying here. There's going to be times of travail that the Lord is doing that, and there's going to be times that things are great. Whenever you're going to enjoy the gifts that God has given you, there's going to be good times and bad times. In good times and bad times, I'll be on your side forevermore. I don't think that that was the intent that they had whenever they sang that song. But it can be applied to Christ, right? He is saying here that it doesn't matter in life, if in the ups and the downs, that whatever God is doing... Nothing can be put to it. Nothing can stop it. Your sinning is not going to stop God's loving. And on the other hand, anything that you're doing that you think is good is not being accepted for righteousness. Okay? Whatever God does, nothing can be put to it nor nothing taken away from it. I can't take away from the salvation that Christ has made for me. I can't put nothing to it. I can't add anything to it. I can't take nothing away. That means I can't make it any more better. I'm not, I can't make myself more holy. The Bible says I'm complete in Him. Preserved and sanctified in Christ Jesus. I can't be more holy than I am holy in Him. I'm complete in Him. But nothing can be taken away. I can't lose that holiness that Christ has made for me. I can't lose that salvation that Christ has made for me. God has has reconciled me to himself through Christ Jesus. I can't be unreconciled. I've been elected. I can't be unelected. You see, we can't lose our salvation because our salvation is of the Lord. And He preserves His people. And we persevere. That means we continue in the faith of Christ Jesus because He is the one who is doing it. Nothing can be taken from it. Nothing can be uh, um, put to it. And He does this so that men should fear Him. So that we might reverence Him. Why do we worship Him? We come and we worship Him. Why? Because we've done such great things. Oh, what's the how we we sing the hymn? He hath done great things. He hath done great things. Not we have done great things, but he has done great things. It's all about what Christ has done, and He's the one who is preserving us. So we cannot lose our salvation. Cannot lose our fellowship, our relationship, whatever term you want to put on that. We cannot lose it because it is not on our keeping. It's on Christ. And he's made the promises. Look with me into Isaiah. Oh man, time is just flying. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. And look with me if you would at verse 4. It says, And even to your old age I am he. 
and even to your four hairs will I carry you. That's kind of sounds a strange language to us, right? Even to our whore hairs. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? H-O-A-R. <laughs> See that? See that? <laughs> Brother Ed's got quite a few over there. Gray hairs. Even to our gray hairs. Okay? Few and far between too, brother. Yeah. <laughs> he says, and even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. I will carry you. Ain't that a beautiful, beautiful thought, brother? I will carry you till the end. You're not going to be able to make it to the end. If it was left to you to walk, you know that, uh, uh, and, and if anybody has one of these in their house, please forgive me if I, and I don't mean to be an offense, but has anybody seen all the little plaques of footprints in the sand where you see the two feet walking, then all of a sudden you see just one footprint, and that was me carrying you? Well, the truth be known, it's all one set of footprints the whole way. It's never two sets of footprints and then one set of footprints. It's one set of footprints the whole way. Christ is carrying us from eternity to eternity. We never walk of our own. There is never anything in us that the Lord considers for righteousness. It's all about what Christ has done. He is the one that is carrying us, and he has made us, and he will bear us up. He will bear us up. We don't have to bear ourselves up. He will bear us up. And He will deliver us. That's a promise, right? Does God lie? Okay, well, you can trust that, right? All right, look at Jeremiah. I'm going to have to start getting quicker. I got a bunch of verses to look at. Jeremiah 32 40. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. How long of a covenant? Everlasting. Now, is the definition of everlasting as long as you hold out? <laughs> is the definition of everlasting as long as you do good? As long as you're perfect? As long as you're obedient? Is that the definition of everlasting? No, how long is everlasting? Forever. Forever. Everlasting, right? It lasts forever. Kind of like the Energizer Bunny, right? I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them. Now, how much clearer can you get from that, brethren? Is the Lord going to turn away from you? I hear people all the time say, well, if I don't keep up this relationship with the Lord, the Lord's going to turn away from me. He says here that he will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, or reverence, and they shall not depart from me. Can you lose your salvation? Well, if you think so, you contradict the word of God. You're being, you're, what you say is contradictory to what God says. You're not saying what God says. You're saying what you say. 
You're saying what you say. God says that it can't be taken away. It can't be lost. You will not depart from him. Does that mean that we can't see him? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that sometimes we might become indifferent. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that our hearts might wax cold for a little while. But brethren, it means that we will not turn away from him and depart the faith never to return. He will bring us back. Matter of fact, that tune that we sang that one song to was to the tune of Revive Us Again. The very fact of that song, Revive Us Again. Even David said, talked about that. Reviving me. Turn me and I will be turned. You know, there are times that we need to be turned. Whenever he went into the season with Bathsheba, what happened? Not only did he lust after Bathsheba, and that lust turned into adultery with Bathsheba, but then that adultery turned into um, uh, uh, plotting and planning uh, and falsely uh, doing the, this workings with Uriah. Was it Uriah? I may have lost the name. Anyway, uh, uh, Uriah? Okay, yeah, I thought it was. For some reason, it kind of, as soon as I said it, I was like, maybe not. Um, but Uriah, and then his ultimate death, sending him to his death. We've seen that whole entire thing, and then trying to cover it up, and then what happened? Whenever the Lord came through the prophet and convicted him, what was it? He, man, he was, he was sorrowful for that. He couldn't continue to go away. He couldn't go away. The Lord kept him. Look, if you would, with me at Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 19. Does it say different in the Spanish Bible? Chapter 11. Ezekiel 11. I want to look at verse uh, 19. He says, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. A new spirit. He doesn't work your old spirit and make something better out of it. He puts a completely, totally different new spirit there, right? And I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So here is a promise that God is going to work in us to will and to do His good pleasure, right? He's going to keep doing that. But look who's the one that's doing it. It's the Lord. I will, I will, I will, I will. It's not you will. If you will, try to. It's He will. He will do these things in us. All right, let's jump to the New Testament before we run out of time. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And look with me at verse 14. Now again, remember when Jesus taught a lot of times, a lot of times he used, uh, he used, uh, pictures and, and allegories and, and metaphors and things like that in his teaching. Verse 14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up 
into everlasting life. Now, this is whenever he was talking with the woman at Samaria, right? And the woman was coming and drawing the well. Jesus was sitting at the well. He was thirsty. The woman was coming to the well to get water because they had run out of water at their house and they needed water and they was thirsty. And they every day they would have to make the trip to the to the well to get water. Okay? Every time we had to go get water. We had to get water. We grew up uh, down here in Neosho uh, whenever I was little. We didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse out back and we didn't have indoor plumbing. We had a well outside and there was a hand pump that was out there. Whenever we needed water, we went in and got water out of the hand pump, brought it back in. And just the labor of going back and forth and back and forth to get the water. We continued to get thirsty. We continued to get thirsty. We continued to get thirsty. Okay? We were never satisfied. Well, Jesus here is using the illusion of water here and a well, saying that whoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Meaning that we're not going to find, we're going to be satisfied. Our thirst will be quenched. We've been thirsting for righteousness. Right? But before we were given faith, our thirst for righteousness was to get it by our own works. And we had to keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But never being satisfied. Why? Because we never could keep the law. We never could keep the law. We were always uh, uh, never settled. But whenever the Lord showed us that righteousness is in Christ Jesus alone, whenever He gave us to learn and to rest in Christ's righteousness, now we are no longer thirsty. We are satisfied. Our thirst has been quenched. Christ has quenched that. Matter of fact, He says that that it's even as like if a, if a spring or a well was inside of us that continually was there. That'd be like carrying around a a, 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 a water a, what a, like a what are they the water coolers or the the did you get a drink out of that water fountain. Why can't I think of that? Like carrying around a little water fountain. <laughs> like carrying around a little water fountain everywhere you go, just getting a drink anytime you want to get a drink. Okay? You're never going to be thirsty. Why? Because I continue got water going through my mouth. I'm not going to be thirsty. Well, Jesus is saying he's like that for righteousness. To the child of grace, he's the one who satisfies them. We're satisfied in Christ Jesus. He's all that we need. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but hold lean on Jesus' name. We rest in Him. We find our uh, completeness in Him. Everything is about Jesus Christ, and He quenches our thirst and desire for anything else, else outside of Him. I no longer are trying to look to Mike Smith for for uh, for keeping the things to be pleasing to God. I rest in Christ Jesus. My thirst has been quenched. I have found the water of life. I have found that fountain that wells up inside over and over and over and over again that reminds me that salvation is not in what I do, but what Christ has done for me. So he gives that to us. And that will keep us looking to Christ, right? John chapter 5, verse 24. Just a couple pages over, a page over. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, who's the ones that hear his word? His sheep, right? 
the sheep. Who are the ones who believe his word? All that who have been ordained shall believe, right? Acts 13, 48. And all those who were ordained to eternal life believed. His sheep hear his voice. His sheep are the ones that hear him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, that word hath is past tense, already, in possession, everlasting life. So the ones who hear and believe already had everlasting life. Now that's totally opposite of what you hear in modern day preaching today. They say it's just the opposite. That if you believe, if you hear his word and believe on him, then he will give you everlasting life. But this is just the opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus is completely opposite of most modern day preachers. They are preaching opposite. You see, that's why we don't, that we don't acknowledge Arminian churches as gospel churches is because they're preaching a gospel opposite of Jesus' gospel. That's why we don't, uh, that's why we don't accept their baptisms. That's why we don't, uh, do ecumenical work with them. That's why we don't do, because there is two different gospels there. One gospel is saying it is because of something you've done you get everlasting life. The other one is because you've been given everlasting life, this is what happens. Two different gospels. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and what, look at here, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Shall not, shall not, shall not, shall not, shall not come into condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus. The actual verse says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But that means they are sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus, right? That's why there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation because they are in Him. He is their substitute. He is their head. He is their, uh, uh, he is their uh, advocate. He is their representative. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. He is the mediator for us. Everything that Christ did, he did on behalf of us as a substitutionary work. His life, his death, it's all ours. We are complete in him. And he says right here, there's no condemnation. Why? Because we passed from death unto life. John chapter 6 <clears throat> John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. Very familiar verses for us. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now, I've told you all this in the past. There's there's a, a phrase or there's a word that we're often called, people that believe like we do. Uh, me personally, that I've been called this. They're called hard shells. Oh, you're one of those hard shell Baptists. Have you ever heard that term, brother? You're old hard shell Baptist. Well, where did that come from? Well, people that believe that whenever the Word of God says shall, it doesn't mean maybe. We believe it says they shall. There's no way it's going to... And so those who believed in that were distinguished between the Fullerite Baptist in the... Uh, back in the 1800s, the Fullerite Baptists believed that Jesus, or that God loved everybody, 
and that Jesus died for everybody, but only the elect would receive that salvation. But they had to go out and preach the gospel to them, otherwise they would die and go to hell and never hearing the gospel. Therefore, uh, there were people that they need to get out and reach, and that's where the modern missionary movement came. And it was in an attempt to save souls so they wouldn't die and go to hell. Well, right here, the Bible says, and the old Christians, the old Baptists all believe that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There is no way that they're going to be lost. Not one of them is going to be lost because of an attempt or a lack of attempt by somebody else. They will come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's a promise. If you have come to Christ Jesus, that means you've been brought to Christ Jesus, by the way, by Christ Jesus. If you come to Christ Jesus, because no man comes to the Father but by him, the Father draws, the Son calls, the Son, through his Spirit, brings you to him, right? All that comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Can you lose your salvation? Well, the only way you can is if he cast you out. And he said right here, he will not cast out all that the Father has given him. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. Okay, we're talking about God's will here. Everything that God wills is going to take place. We just read it a while ago. All of God's works are going to take place and nothing can be taken from it or put to it. The beginning to the end. There's another verse of scripture that said, Known unto God are all his works, the end from the beginning. Okay? It says, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all, not some, not a few, but all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That means everyone that has been sanctified, that first verse we looked at, sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus in eternity past, what does he say? He's going to raise them up at the last day. So whether it was from Adam until whoever, at the end, they're going to be preserved in Christ Jesus. And they're going to be raised up because they've been given to Christ. And He has done the will of the Father in coming to be a sacrifice for them, to redeem them for them. Let me take that from Drop it in your mouth. He says, And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there is the promise that he will raise them up. He is going to preserve them. Look at verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath, again, past tense, everlasting life. And in verse 51 he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eateth this bread... He shall live forever. And the bread which I give, which I will give, is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus has promised here to give faith to his people and that they will live on that faith. That water, that bread that he's talking about, it's talking about faith in what he has done. Those metaphors are being used to speak of the faith that God has given us to look to Christ alone for all that we need. Look with me at chapter 10 of John. 
John chapter 10 and verse 28. It says, And I give unto them, well, let's back up, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, here it is, because ye are not of my sheep. Again, sidetrack here. That's just the opposite of what we hear in modern evangelicalism today. Evangelicalism today says, if you believe, you will become one of his sheep. He will bring you in as one of his sheep. But this is just saying the opposite. He says, the reason that you don't believe is because you're not already my sheep. That's why Jesus said, he that believeth on me hath already everlasting life. They're already having life. That's why they believe on me. They believe on me because they are already my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They have hearing. See, brethren, it's all about Christ and what he's done. And it's his sovereign salvation, not this man's works, free will, choice, decisionism, salvation. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. He gives unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Never perish. Never perish. Can you lose your salvation? Yes, preacher, I think you can if you do enough sinning. Well, Jesus right here said they shall never perish. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, if you can, you lose your salvation, you can only do it because you have got, been greater than Christ. You have overpowered Christ and taken yourself out of His hand and the Father's. Right? Alright, look with me if you would. John chapter 17. I think all y'all probably know where I'm going with this one. John chapter 17, verse 24. We're going to go over just a little bit this morning, brethren, so hang in there with me. John chapter 17, look at verse 24. Father, I will... This is Jesus' prayer, right? Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, that kind of seems to be a theme through Jesus' teaching, right? Election. Those that the Father has given me. Those who were sanctified and preserved before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. Does the Bible teach election? Absolutely it does. Does it teach personal election? Yes, it does. Does it teach individual election? Yes, it does. Does it teach unconditional election? Absolutely it does. The boys, having done nothing good or bad, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. One was said he would serve the other, right? Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. That was the will of God. The will of God was that they that was given to him by God would be with him. For he is, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
Brethren, that's a promise that Christ has willed that we be with him and see his glory. Romans chapter 4 and verse 8. I won't dwell long on this one. But just as a, a show of some of the blessing that God has given upon us as a promise. It said, blessed is the man, Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Those who have been sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus does not have sin imputed to them, but the righteousness of Christ. Before you were even born, the righteousness of Christ was already imputed to you. You were blessed because God didn't impute your sins to you. He imputed them to Christ and imputed His righteousness to you. So there's never been a time in my life, even before my conversion, even before I became aware of my salvation, I had already been imputed the righteousness of Christ to my account. I didn't know it, but the gospel brought that life and that immortality and all that righteousness and justification and sanctification and glorification and all the things involved in the blessings of uh, God brought it to light in the gospel. It told me what Christ had done for me and gave to me. And so that is a blessing. And in that blessing, if God has imputed has not imputed sin into me, then that means I can't lose my salvation because my sin was imputed to Christ and not me, and I have His righteousness in its stead. That I'm righteous, as He is righteous. And so I cannot perish because I don't have sin imputed to me. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. How much life? Half-life? No, not half-life. Part-life? No, we have eternal life. Can we lose our salvation? Well, if so, it's not eternal life that we got. Romans 8.17 It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ Jesus, if so be that we suffer with him that we might that we may also glorify be also be also glorified together. Now brother I want to stop here for just a minute of exposition of this verse. That word suffer there is not talking about sufferings in this lifetime like we were talking about travail earlier. This right here is talking about our union with Christ in his death. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. It's speaking of we died in Christ Jesus, our death in him. If we died in him, then we are joint heirs with Jesus. Our union, it speaks of our union with Christ Jesus. So if we be in Christ Jesus, Again, going back to the very beginning, sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus, our union with Christ. If we have been united with Christ before the foundation of the world, then it says right here that we were in Him when He suffered. And if we were in Him when He suffered, then all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus for us. Right? That's a promise to you, brethren. Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are, and I want you to notice this, and I'm curious to see what the Spanish Bible says here. The word thee there, to them who are the called. That word thee there is a definite article, thee, meaning a specific group of people. Now, some other translations, some modern translations say to those who are called. It drops the the out. But in the Greek, the definite article, the, is there. So that means it's a specific group of people he's talking about here. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That's a group of people. There's a people who are called according to his purpose. What does that mean, preacher? Those who are sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus and, what was it? And called. They are the called. What is the calling? Well, we know some people, and we often talk about that the Holy Spirit calls us in conversion, and we have that inward call or that irresistible call uh, of the Holy Spirit. But whenever we talk about calling here, and when we talk about calling in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, we're talking about the call of election. The call of God to sanctify His people and to call them His own. The called. Those who are the called. The called ones. The called out ones. The ones who have been called out as a people for His own. Those are what we're talking about. All things work together for them. For whom He did foreknow. That's the people that we're talking about. The ones that He foreknew and He had also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now that call there is what we're talking about. That he predestinated them, but there is a point in where he calls them to himself, converts them, gives them understanding, and he brings them into the knowledge of, of the gospel. To them he did predestinate, them he also called. To them he called, them he also justified. And to them whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor de or death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Can you lose your salvation, brethren? If you think so, you are in direct contradiction to God's word. In Romans chapter eleven twenty nine, it says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In Romans 14, 4, he says, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up 
for God is able to make him. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and make manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. It's God who causes us to always triumph in Christ. See 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Brethren, although we might experience a lot of travail, we will not be overcome. Our salvation cannot be lost. Look while you're there in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus Christ shall, there's that word shall again, raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. That's not a promise for you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you do it, but that's a promise that God will do that. He will make sure that you have all sufficiency, and that He will do uh, that work in you. Ephesians 1.14 it says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest. That word earnest means like a down payment or a promise. He has given us his spirit as a promise that we will receive the inheritance. And he has given us that uh, earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Ephesians 4.13 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit. That's that, that, that's that sealing that talks about of the Holy Spirit. That sealing is a, is a preserving. The Holy Spirit is preserving us until the day uh, of redemption. Whenever, whenever you ladies cook food for your family, at the end of the night there's some leftovers. What do you do? You get out a Tupperware bowl. You put it in there, put the lid down on it. <coughs> or you put it in a Ziploc bag and zip it up. What are you doing? You're sealing it up to keep it fresh, right? To keep it from going bad. You're sealing it. You're preserving it. That's what the Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's what the sealing of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit seals us and preserves us until the day of redemption. Can you lose your uh, salvation? Well, only if you can overcome the Holy Spirit who has sealed you and unsealed yourself. Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Who will perform it? 
He that has begun the good work will perform it. It's not about your performance. It's about Him performing in you. Him working. Not you working. Your works will never be accepted. But His in you. Those spiritual works inside of you, they'll definitely be done. Be confident in this very thing. He that begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.9. I know I'm going fast, brethren. If you can't keep up, just maybe write, write them down and look at them later. Nevertheless, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God knows us, and we have this seal. It stands sure. God knows who we are. God isn't out there thinking, well, are they Christian? I don't know. They kind of look like it. I don't know. No, no. God knows everyone that are his. And they have been sealed. 2 Timothy 4.18 says this, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, who is the one who is preserving God. It's not you doing it on your own. It's God. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ is always living, or is living to always make intercession on our behalf. When Satan accuses the brethren, what's happening? Christ is interceding before God, saying, the blood of my... The, my blood has cleansed them from all sin. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. We have eternal life. If we believe on the name of Jesus Christ, we have the everlasting... I mean, we've already read verses that almost say the exact same thing several times already. Now, here we are in wrapping this up. We started at the very beginning of our study this morning in eternity past, right? Preserved in Christ Jesus. And I made the claim, sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus. And I made the claim that that speaks of God's choosing, God's electing, Vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a couple of theological things here, and you guys can go back and gnaw on this or do your Facebook debates all that you want to do or whatever you want to do. But but there is a thing out there, a debate among sovereign grace believers that is is there such thing as double election or double predestination? Did God, pre- did God elect some for salvation and also actively elect others not to have salvation? There are those like me, and we are called, here's the big 50 cent word, super lapsarians. We believe that God has ordained both people and elected. He's chosen the elect and he has chosen the reprobate. He elected some, he has reprobated others before he ever created anything, before Adam ever fell. There are others who believe that God did that after Adam, by free choice, 
fail by his sinfulness. They're called infralapsarians, if you're interested in the big 50-cent word. The ones who believe that, they believe that God has elected some out of Adam's fallen race and just passively passes over the others, leaving them in their sin, but he never did actively reprobate them. Well, brethren, there is so much scripture that is against that. And I'm going to show you right here that what I said in the beginning, that God has, before the foundation of the world, chosen, preserved, and uh, uh, sanctified and preserved those in Christ Jesus, that at that same time, there were the rest of mankind that he actively chose not to do that with. Therefore, double predestination or double election, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> Look with me, if you would, at Revelations chapter... Three. Verse five. If I can get this tickle out of my throat, that'd be great. Revelation chapter three and verse five. Now, without going into a bunch of context here, we know that the ones who overcome are the ones who are overcome because of Christ, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to overcome. So, the overcomers aren't the ones who in their own will and desire and work overcome, they have been made to overcome, right? They've, been, they've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. They've overcome by the Holy Spirit who causes them to overcome. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now that doesn't mean that's a condition. If you overcome, you will be clothed in white raiment. That's a statement of fact. Those who are clothed in white raiment, uh, raiment are the ones who are overcomers. The ones who are overcomers are the ones who have been clothed in white raiment. It's just a statement of fact, brethren. It's not a conditional statement. That if you will overcome, you'll get a white raiment. God's going to give it to you as a reward for you overcoming. No, God's the one who causes you to overcome, and it's his white raiment that has been put on you, the righteousness of Christ, right? He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now there are some that says, there you go, there you can lose your salvation, because why would he say, I will not blot his name out of the book of life? Give it to my verse here. Okay. Now, what does God mean whenever he says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life? It's a promise. It's a promise. Absolutely. Again, it's a statement of fact. Now, here's the reason why he said that. He is writing to the church in Sardis here in Revelation. And this church in Sardis, the reason he used this term, as a matter of fact, in every one of the letters to these seven churches, he uses language that they identify with something personable about that particular church. Here in Sardis, in their city, the city of Sardis, they were very particular about their citizens. And their citizens being upstanding citizens. And if you did anything to throw dishonor on the citizens and the citizenship of Sardis, they would 
blot you out of their role as a citizen and kick you out of their city. If you did anything to embarrass, to bring shame, to bring you know, to break the law in Sardis to the point that that they would judge you no longer a citizen, they would blot your name out of the city rolls and they would kick you out and you would be, no longer be a citizen of Sardis. So Jesus, whenever he wrote the letter to the church of Sardis, he used that mentality that they knew already about, about being kicked out for not performing well. He used that to tell them, listen, in Sardis, they may blot you out of the book of citizenship if you can't do nothing good. But my promise is this to you, that he that overcometh shall be clothed in white raiment, and you are overcomers if you are in Christ Jesus. And you will not be blotted out of the book of life when you sin, because you've been clothed with white raiment. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus himself, again, there's his advocacy, his intercession for us. He is advocating on our behalf. Yes, those people may have been sinners, but they, I have clothed them in white raiment, and by my blood they have overcome. And they will not be blotted out. Whenever it comes to that, God is not going to blot them out. Their names are written forever. So that is not saying that there is a chance that somebody's name could be blotted out. And I'm going to explain why here in just a second here. Let's look at Revelation chapter 13. We want to find something else about this book of life. <clears throat> Revelation 13, 8. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. <clears throat> so here we see something about this book of life. He says there were people whose names are not written. And it's written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the names were written in this book of life from the foundation of the world. And this book belongs to the Lamb slain. It's his book. That book is the, all the ones that the Father hath given him. That book has the names of all those who are sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus written in it. But look what it says here. It says whose names are not written. That means that there are names known to God, and he actively did not write them in that book to be the ones who would be the recipients of union with Christ, inheritors of the promise, receivers of that salvation. Now you tell me that there's not double election? You tell me that God didn't actively reprobate these people? Right here he says his, he did not intentionally, he did not write their names down. At the same time, he did write others' names down. So all of the names of mankind that he would create from beginning to end are known unto God. And being known unto God, he elected, sanctified, and preserved some in Christ Jesus, and he wrote those names down in a book. The rest of those, he did not write their names down in the book because he never intended 
to bring them to salvation. He, he intended them to be vessels of dishonor, as Romans tells us. But let's go a little further. Look at Revelation chapter 17. We see it again. The Bible says, In the mouth of two, two or three witnesses, a thing is established. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So here again, we're told that there were names not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It wasn't after Adam sinned. It was before Adam sinned. God's election was before the fall. And he elected people who would not have sin imputed to them. He elected people that would have sin imputed to them. Those who would have Christ's righteousness, those who would not have Christ's righteousness. Those who would be vessels of honor, those who would be vessels of dishonor. Now look at Revelation chapter 20. Verses 12 through 15. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Sidetrack. Why is it called the book of life? Because it's the book of everyone that was appointed to have eternal life. All those who were ordained to eternal life believed, right? The book of life is a, is a book of those who were ordained to receive eternal life by Christ Jesus. Therefore, those whose names are not written in the book of life was not ordained to receive eternal life. That's double election, double predestination, whatever you want to call it. God actively chose these and not these. He didn't just say, I want to do it for these, and these people here are going to do themselves in. No, he actively chose that these people would become that very thing for which he made them. The pot doesn't make itself. The potter makes the pot, right? Speaking of a vessel pot, not <laughs> pot, okay? <clears throat> And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. <clears throat> and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the de and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Okay? So everyone whose name was not written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That, was, that had nothing to do with whether they were good or bad. It was according to God's election. And if you look in Romans chapter 9, he speaks of both positive and negative election. The boys, having done neither good nor bad, so it wasn't based upon their performance, nobody is ever chosen for heaven or cho chosen for hell, for salvation or for reprobation, uh, for or condemnation. 
They're never chosen based upon their performance. What is they're being chosen based upon? The purpose of God's will. His good pleasure. He chose one and not the other. Why? Because it was his purpose in election. His purpose was election. From the foundation of the world, God's purpose was electing a group of people for glorifying himself through redemption. And there was a group of people that he elected for reprobation to glorify himself in judgment and justice. Look at Revelation 21, 27. This is the last verse. He says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only ones that are going to enter in are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we learn that those names were written before the foundation of the world. Now, preacher, why did you say all that at the end of this thing? Well, again, I began with the notion that our preservation, your perseverance, is by God. It's as strong as Christ's salvation for you. Your continuance in the faith is just as prompt, just as much promised as the very salvation that God said he would give you in justifying you. If you believe, hey, I can't be unjustified, then that means you can't be you can't lose your salvation. But if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you've gone against every bit of teaching of scripture and that God's works from the very beginning are nothing. The reason I ended here is to show you <clears throat> that to be sanctified and preserved in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world is because we have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and no man can blot us out of the Lamb's Book of Life and that we will preserve to the end because it is Him that will continue to keep us and not we ourselves, right? All right, does anybody have any questions or any comments? Any? There was a lot of verses there. I'm sure I still missed a few. But anybody got any, any questions or comments or any other verses? That... <clears throat> well, yeah, Jude, uh, 24. Jude 24. Jude 24. We were in Jude, but I didn't go to 24. I missed that one. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yes. You want me to read it? Yeah. Okay. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Wow. Unto him who is able. You're not able. But he is able. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto him. <clears throat> it's kind of a contradictory sounding term because we know that we're at fault, right? But he says he presents us faultless. Does that mean that in this lifetime he makes us so good that we quit sinning so that he can present us faultless? No. How does he present us faultless? 
Well, those verses that we read, because he's clothed us in white raiment. <clears throat> he's put on, put on us a vesture of white that he provided. It didn't come out of our closet, it came out of his closet. And it's his righteousness that he gives us. So the only reason we stand faultless before God is because we've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We stand in his righteousness. Again, <clears throat> That's the, that's the sanctifying and preserving in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world, not being imputed those sins, but being imputed the righteousness of God our whole entire life. Did you just think of that? Before you ever come to know yourself to be saved, you were already righteous in Christ Jesus. Even, uh, even all the horrible things that we do, we were righteous in Christ Jesus before Him. It truly is a gospel of grace. It truly is a gospel of Christ, brethren. And I, I pray that that's encouragement to you, that, that these promises to keep us and preserve us is a promise that He's going to keep. Not, not that we have to keep. He's going to keep it. We'll definitely be the recipients of His work in us to keep us uh, until the very end. And uh, hopefully that uh, that encourages you in the faith and and I know sometimes whenever I'm sinning and I read verses like this and everything, it really just makes me feel bad about how, man, I've, I've, I've done bad and dishonored God, but yet He still loves me. He still uh, is working in me. He is still uh, keeping me and that I can't lose that love or be separated from that love. Uh, what, a, what a joyous thing to think about, brother. Hopefully that will uh, that will be a motivation in your heart uh, to continue to look unto Him uh, and look to His righteousness alone for your salvation, and not looking at yourself. Anybody else got anything you'd like to share? Another verse? Well, all right, let's let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for another day that you've given us. We thank you for another. Uh, look into God's Word and what a joy it is to see these beautiful promises that you've given us. <clears throat> Father, we know that all things uh, as it pertains to life and death, salvation, uh, everything is by your hand. That you have decreed all things as we sang this morning. You are bringing all things to their predestinated end. And Lord, we just look to you as our God and thank you that you have revealed these things unto us. We know that we do not deserve it. It's not by anything in us that deserves it or anything that we have done to merit it. Uh, Lord, we know that the only reason that we know these things is because you have chosen to reveal them to us. And it humbles us to know that. <clears throat> so Lord, we pray that you would help keep us from boasting in our flesh, but even from boasting in our election and predestination, that we know that it is only by your mercy and grace that you have had compassion upon whom you will, that you have given mercy to whom you will. And so, Lord, we're like no other person, but because of Christ we differ. And that's the only reason. So, Father, I pray that you'd be with these brethren as they leave here today, that you might keep them that you might encourage them, that you might edify them by the Word of God, that you might bring them into opportunities to speak the gospel to other people this week of yours that might need to hear the gospel, 
Lord, may you enable them during that. And we just, Lord, we just lift you up and honor you for all that you have done for us. And until you bring us together again, Father, we just ask your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.